2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, and th- are complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And many times I've read that, you think I wouldn't mess it up by now, but my goodness, here we are. So here's the thing. We have been in this series for a while. We're looking for the idea of what did God equip us for? What did God equip us with? Has He given us everything we need to be successful in this life? Now let me define that term successful in the eyes of God or obedience to His commands. Fair enough? It's not how much money you made. It's not even how many people you get saved. I know it. It's crazy, right? It's how many people did you share the gospel with? Does your life reflect His goodness, His mercy? Does it reflect all of, all of His attributes? Or are we self-centered, only worried about us? We only care if the air conditioner works in the church. Otherwise, I ain't going. Are they playing the songs I like? If they're not, I ain't going. No pressure, Laura, all right? Is he going to read that same verse again? We're going to get some rap. That'll go over well because we're kind of white. I know I can't say that. I, I apologize. So, but here's the thing. I mean, we, we, we act like God is up there and we're supposed to figure out everything that he has for us because we can't know or we don't know and we just got to guess and, and all of this. And the thing is, is that God has equipped us. He's given us what we need. What do we do with it? Nothing. We sit around whining, complaining, and can't figure out, why did God put this burden on me? Why did he give me this cross to bear? Why can't I figure everything out? We have got to get back to the foundation of our belief. And that starts here. We have to know and understand this. This is not arbitrary. This isn't up for interpretation or reinterpretation. Okay? We're not here sitting there trying to figure out, okay, God, I know that's what you said. Let me tell you what you meant. We're not sitting there trying to say, well, I just don't understand this part. What does this mean to you, Sally? I don't care, Sally. Get over yourself. What I care about is what did God say and what did he mean? That's it. And that's where we start, and that's where we end. And so in doing so, we began to look at what is the proper interpretation of Scripture, and how do we look at it? We read out of Matthew chapter 4. It says that Jesus was led up by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When he had fasted for 40 days and nights afterward, he was hungry, and the tempter came to him, saying, If you are the Son of God, then command that these stones become bread. And he said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, when we read this, like, okay, what happened here? Jesus, the Son of God, the not declared Messiah, but ultimately is the Messiah, is tempted by the enemy in a very good way, makes some bread. It's a good thing. Jesus' response to the temptation is with Scripture. So we did something that is revolutionary inside of the church today. We went and read the passage that Jesus was quoting. To see exactly what he was getting at. And we did that in Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 1. It says, every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you'd keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you and he allowed you to hunger and he fed you with manna, which you didn't know, nor did your fathers, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So we've got an example with the Israelites. Now, did the Israelites, like, was the wilderness wandering a good thing for them? Ultimately, yes. They were there by their own accord because all they had to do is like, hey, guys, I gave you this land. Uh, You should go take it. Oh, but there's really big people there. 
So we can't. No, 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 you don't understand. I gave it to you. You just take it. Did you see those people? They're huge. And that's why they ended up there. And so in that, all they did was constantly complain and whine against God. And so what did God do? He allowed them to hunger. But what did he ultimately do? He fed them with manna. There was nothing that they went through that God did not equip for them. You guys see that? Jesus references this passage. He said, man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And I hit you with the question, what would happen if we did that? If we looked at this and said, you know what? If they did it, then maybe I should be doing it. We talk a big game. And I don't mean we as just us in this room. I mean we as in the church as a whole. We talk a big game. You guys ever play sports? Like intramural sports, all right? So let me tell you a story, all right? You guys like my stories? I don't care if you don't because I'm going to tell them anyway because they're my stories and I like my stories. But uh, when I went to Rayma, I went down to Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma to be specific. I went to Rayma and uh, they had intramural sports there. They had softball and they had floor hockey, which I didn't even know was a thing. You don't skate, you run. That sounds terrible to me. But be that as it may, they had flag football, and so I always got asked, the question was like, oh, did you play, a, did you play football? I'm kind of a big guy. I said, actually, yeah, I played quarterback in college. Really? Where'd you go to college? They're like, well, I went to college in Oklahoma. They're like, you were a quarterback for Oklahoma? I'm like, in Oklahoma? <laughs> Same thing. Sometimes I, I correct them, sometimes I don't. I let them. But anyway, so there was this guy that played floor hockey, and uh he showed up, and he had all the gear, everything you could imagine, high-dollar name-brand stuff. Now, I grew up in Nebraska, not a lot of hockey being played there. So I was being educated on all of this stuff, like, well, why are you wearing that, and why are you wearing this? And he had this stick. It's like a $300 hockey stick. I didn't even know you could do that or why you would do that, but be that as it may, to play intramural floor hockey. Pads, jersey, the whole thing. He is geared up, head to toe. He looked, forgive the analogy, like a baller. If you're over 40, you may not catch that reference, but if you're under 20, you may not catch that reference. It's just kind of this fine line, you know. It's the cream in the Oreo is what I'm getting at. But anyway, yeah, so hope to interpretation. Sally, what do you think that means? Okay. But anyway, he shows up and he looks the part and he looks mean and tough. And I'm like, man, I don't know who's got him, but <laughs> they're going to win. Let me tell you something. I did not know you could look so uncoordinated without wearing skates, but apparently you can. He was awful. He swung and missed the, they used the ball so hard that he fell over. Again, I didn't know that was possible. And here he is dressed to the nine, he, he looks the part, he had no skills. What was he doing? Covering up for deficiencies. You know, it's kind of like if, if you're not a good shot, buy a better scope. That's what I would do. <laughs> Those who have shot with me will attest to this fact. <laughs> okay? What is the church today? Oh, we're dressed up. And we look good. We sound good. We're powerless. It's just reality. We go in there all ready to move and do these things, but we're not ready because we don't live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. What would happen 
if we just did that. So we began to look at these different things. We've been focused on the idea of healing. And we've been looking at these things that people will use, and they'll say, well, see, God doesn't heal. And we looked at why Trophimus was sick or Epaphroditus. We looked at Timothy and the wine. We looked at Paul's thorn in the flesh. We looked at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you know what we found out? They're actually pretty easy, explainable answers if we just take the time. It's almost like we just don't want to believe it. We have no problem believing that God wants to save everybody. But anything past that, we just don't want to believe. I've heard people that talk about that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's almost like you guys get like a, a second blessing from God or something, and that just doesn't sound right. I'm like, you can have it too. There's not an exclusive club. There's no membership dues, nothing like that. It's just a piece of cake. But it's like we don't want to believe what God has said when it doesn't fit our narrative. You know the number one reason people don't want to believe in healing or the moving of the Spirit of God is? A bad experience. If that is our litmus test, then you better stop going to restaurants because I'm sure you had a bad experience at one, one time or another. You can be like me. You just power through. So here's what we've got to ask going forward. We're going to begin to introduce the idea of how we know what God's will is in the area of healing. Ultimately, we know because it's His Word, but we're going to look at it from two perspectives. We're going to look at it from Scripture, but we're also going to look at it logically. How do we know what God's will is in anything in life? Well, the simple answer, biblically speaking, is what did He say? But that is not the way we look at it today. Let me give you an example. There's a guy named Vadi Bakum out there. Have you guys ever heard of Vadi Bakum? If you haven't, he is a great man of God. He's a preacher. He comes from the Calvinist camp, does not believe that God uh, moves supernaturally today. He's more of a cessationist than anything like that. But he is definitely a defender of the faith. He is a good, good man. Recently diagnosed with some major heart condition. And he's seeking prayer and he's seeking medical help. And he's asking, he's like, please, if you pray that if it's God's will... He will heal me. Okay? The question is, what can we pray if we don't know what God's will is? Let's think about this logically for a moment. If we're not supposed to pray anything that is against God's will, then shouldn't we know what God's will is? Because if we can't know what God's will is, and we're praying against God's will... In one way or another, couldn't you consider that a sin? Anybody's brain constipated? Let me try that again, a little simpler. If God's will can't be known, then how can we pray for anything? Fair enough? Now, let me ask you this question. This is revolutionary. You guys ready? Is it God's will for you to eat food? Think about that for a moment. Yeah, I... <laughs> I felt those judgmental stares. I understand. <laughs> Listen. But is it? How do we know? What Bible verse does, do we look at that says God says to eat? You know, there was never a commandment to necessarily eat, just what to eat. So eating is implied. But we look at the human body. We can look at this naturally. The human body is designed to work off of what? Food. Right? Some of us are working overtime. Some of us are carrying the load for you skinny folk that aren't eating enough, okay? But our body runs off of this naturally. What happens if you don't eat? Eventually, you will die. You'll be tired, lethargic, all of that. Has anybody ever done an extended fast? First three days aren't fun. After that, it's not so bad. 
but you go through this phase where you're very tired and all of that. All right, so eating food. Well, could you look at that biblically and say, yeah, there's scripture that does talk about that, that you shouldn't eat too much, but what you should eat, what you shouldn't eat, all of that. How about this one? How about breathing oxygen? What happens when you don't breathe? I don't know. You don't remember. You'll forget parts of it, right? Now, what Bible verse do I have to turn to say, this is God's will in my life to breathe? You don't, right? Is it a sin to breathe? Of course not. This is stupid, isn't it? You're like, where are you going with this? What happens if you cut yourself? So, I mean, your body's working the way it should. What happens? Your body will begin to clot the blood and the bleeding will stop. Where am I going at? It seems as if God has designed our bodies in a way that it heals itself. And if God designed our body to actually heal itself, then how could it not be His will for a person to be healed? We're just thinking logically. Now, just stay with me for a minute. In other words, when you cut yourself, it'd be over. Now, there are people that have conditions in which the blood won't clot and there has to be an intervention. But that's the abnormality, abnormality I should say. That's not the rule. The rule is, is we have standards. How do you know if you're running a fever? Is it over 98.6? Thanks to Neil, I now know that that was done back in England by a study of 10 people, and they took an average, and that was that. Not sure how that rule comes to be, but that's what they did, apparently. So that's your random fact for the day. Final Jeopardy question, you never know. So the thing is, is that why would God create our bodies to heal themselves if it wasn't His will to heal? Doctors will tell you that they don't heal. What are Now, hello, there we go, and we're back. When we look at the idea of what God has done, does God create us to breathe? Does God create us to eat? Did God create our bodies to heal itself? Doctors don't heal, they just get, they intervene. The vaccine, as I was talking about, is introducing this thing into your body, so your body learns to ward it off. Isn't that interesting? What do we do with that little nugget of information when we look at the idea of what God's will is? If it is God's will, then He has created this way. How about procreation? Is it God's will that we be fruitful and multiply? Absolutely. Does He have a way in which we are supposed to do that? Absolutely. Is that the way we're doing it? Apparently not. Laura was pretty adamant about that. The thing is, is that God has created things in a certain way, in a certain order, and when we go contrary to that order is where we get off base. So the idea that God never intended for us to be healed or to heal us today for whatever reason goes in the, na uh, the face of the way that He created us. Were we created to worship Him? Absolutely. Does He have a way in which He wants to be worshipped? Absolutely. 
We call this the Word of God. Is this the words of God? Yes, it is. Is there a way in which we are supposed to respond to this? Absolutely. We're supposed to go and give our lives to Christ and go to the Father. Is there a way in which we have to do that? Absolutely. Calling yourself a Christian isn't it. Saying some prayer isn't it. What you believe matters. And this is where we're going. Is that if we have issues with what we believe about God's word, then we will have issues in the way we respond to God, his commands, the things that we do. Let me ask you this. Was it God's will for Jesus to die? Absolutely. Do you know that that's debated today? I mean, it's been debated for 2,000 years, but it is debated. Right now, going on, there's a movement where they are debating whether that was God's will for Jesus to die or the result of man and his evil. Trying to stop this loving Savior. Look at Luke chapter 22, verse 39. It says, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives. As he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now Jesus is sitting there saying he knew the cup he was to bear. He says, if it's your will, will you take this from me? But no matter what, your will be done. Does that mean that God had a desire in that situation of what was to be done? Of course. And we see what that is in Romans chapter 3, verse uh, verse 21, I believe. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood uh, through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, who set forth Jesus' blood as propitiation. God the Father. Was it His will that Jesus should die? Of course it was. You see, nothing happens that is contrary to the will of God in that sense. But the thing is, is that we begin to ask these questions, is it God's will to heal? Well, we don't ask the question, like we talked about early on, how did God design us? Number two is, was it God's will for anything? How about, is it God's will to us to share the gospel? Well, of course it is. How do we know? Mark 16. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. How do we know it's God's will? It says so. Not complicated, is it? No, I don't, I don't think so. Well, another thing he says, well, are we supposed to love one another? Absolutely. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. Well, that seems pretty simple. He says that we're to love one another. We don't have to like one another. we got to love each other. That doesn't mean what they try to tell you it means today. But the thing is, is that how do we know what God's will is in any situation? He tells us. Should we pray? Absolutely. Who else prayed? Jesus did. And he actually gave, gave us an example. Look at this. Matthew chapter 6, verse 18. Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. 
Amen. Some of y'all grew up in a church where you recited that every week. That wasn't what he was getting at, but let's go back and look at this for a minute. In verse 10, it says, your will be done. You are praying that God's will be done where? On earth, just like it is in heaven. So we're praying for God's will to be done. How do we know what his will is? He tells us. And then look what he says. Well, give us our daily bread. In other words, is daily bread God's will? Is sustenance according to Jesus? How about forgiveness? According to Jesus. How about deliverance? According to Jesus. You see, that's the thing. As we can clearly see, and we could do this all day long. I think you all get it. We could go through this step by step and say, okay, what is God's will? Can we do these things? Should we know these things? Should we believe these things? And the truth of the matter is, is that we are the ones that have complicated this. Have we complicated salvation? Oh boy, you better believe it. Because most of the church today will tell you, you need to go and do these things. Give this amount, be baptized, go through a confirmation, take communion, do all of these things. What did Jesus say? I've done these things. All you have to do is receive them. But we complicate it. So what did Jesus ask of us to do that he has not equipped us to be capable of? Can you think of something? He says to go out there and preach the gospel. That must mean that he has equipped us with the ability to do so. What does it take to do that? Go talk to people. Anybody not talk? If you can't talk, you get a pass. What about loving one another? Has he equipped us to do so? He also said to not sin. Has he given us the ability to do that? Absolutely. In fact, the thing is, is that he's given us every tool necessary, no matter what it is in any circumstance, that we can do. So then, if he has given this to us, then maybe we should follow the examples that he has laid out. In 1 Peter 2, we read this last week, verse 21, it says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. And Peter goes on and talks about these. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Who is Paul imitating? Jesus. So if he's imitating Jesus, then we can imitate him. And who are we looking like? Jesus. Ephesians 5, therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. One more, 1 John 2 verse 3. Now by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, he who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. It's almost like these guys are trying to get us something here. They're trying to get us to say, you know what? We should be just like Jesus. And when we hear that, our mind goes, yes, we should be loving and we should be compassionate. You know where it doesn't go? We should be teaching, we should be preaching, and we should be healing. Every one of these examples is an example of what we are supposed to be doing, following in his example. So we have to ask ourselves this question, what is it that Jesus did? Because whatever Jesus did, even up until the point of death, we should be doing also. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it says, And Jesus went about all Galilee. He taught in their synagogues. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. And he healed all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people. His fame went throughout all Syria. They brought him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments. And those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, and paralytics, he healed them. 
Matthew 9, verse 35, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and every, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Was there anybody not healed that came to him? Was there anybody not set free who came to him? So what did he do? He taught in their synagogue. He preached the gospel. He healed the sick. That's ironic because, you know, Paul said, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. What did Paul do? Well, we know when he went into a city, he went into the synagogue. We know that he preached the gospel. What else do we know? He healed the sick. So where do we get off the hook? When did that change? You know, John wrote the book of Revelation, kind of the last book that was written. Maybe there's something in there that he said, oh, hey, guys, by the way, all that stuff before, don't worry about that. We took care of it. You just do your thing. Just have a good Facebook Live. Make sure you're streamed. Make sure you've got plenty of bandwidth. I'm using terms. I don't even know what they all mean, all right? Where did we become this me-centered church? Because we've lost the heart of God. What did Jesus do? He taught, he preached, he healed. What did Paul do? He taught, he preached, he healed. What did Peter do? He taught, he preached, he healed. What should we do? We should teach, we should preach, we should heal. There's no difference. If you're going to be like Christ, then be like Christ. Should we be willing to lay down our life? Absolutely. It may come to that at some point. We've got it so cushy here, we're not grateful for it. You hear about miracles taking place all over the world. And one of the things that they will talk about, like I have a friend of mine that's done a lot of ministry over in India. And he was talking because you see miracles happen all the time, every service. And they believe, and this is what they'll tell you, these Indian pastors over there, they'll say the number one reason they believe that God moves in that way there is because if they don't get healed, it's not like they can just go down the street to the hospital. There is no second hope. What do we have here? Where do we turn as soon as sickness strikes? A pill, a doctor, something. I'm not saying those things are necessarily wrong. Don't misunderstand me. What I'm saying is, is we don't turn to the very one who has paid for all of this. In Acts 10.38, it says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. Who did he heal? All. In fact, as we saw last week, there's never an example where somebody came to Jesus and they were not set free. There's never an example where somebody came to the apostles and they were not set free. There are examples in our lives, right? Why do you think that might be? Maybe it's because we're not teaching, we're not preaching, we're not healing. To be like Christ means to be like Christ. We've got to get back to that. Mark 16 Verse 17, these signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. If they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Did he say they might? Did he say, if it be thy will? No. How do we know what God's will is? He's made it very clear. He has designed us in such a way. So let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because we have a responsibility here, and I want you guys to get this. We're just introducing these ideas, but the thing is, is that we have a responsibility. If we're going to call ourselves Christians, that name, that term comes with strings attached to it. It's kind of like when Ananias was sent to Paul, I need you to go tell him all the things he's going to suffer for my names. Jesus warned the apostles up front, they hate me, they're going to hate you. That has not changed. While we have not experienced persecution to the level that they have around the world, it's coming. 
There is a day that this is going to come. It's getting closer day by day. We have a responsibility. The term Christian is so loose anymore that anybody's a Christian. You were born in this country, you're a Christian. Congratulations. Doesn't matter what you believe. Doesn't matter what you think. Doesn't matter if you even hold to the uh, veracity of Scripture. No, you can believe what you want and be a Christian. Ironically, though, the term Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. Twice in Acts, once in 1 Peter, and they were not endearing terms. It's followers of the way. What was the way? Well, Jesus said He was. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. How do you get to the Father? Only through Him. Not according to a lot of modern belief. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, We know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. How do we know that? He's told us. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed in our, with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us, this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's going on in there we're not going to get into today. So we are always confident, knowing that while we're at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Now that's interesting. He said we walk by faith and not by sight. Why is that? What does he mean by that? It doesn't mean that we have this blind faith and we just believe whatever. It means the fact that we are believing that God is going to take us out of this mortal body into a life of eternity by faith because we can't see that. We can't experience that. It's kind of like, some of you guys may not understand this, but when you are, uh, let's just say, have a certain girth and size, and somebody gives you a ladder and says, now one of those rungs isn't very good, but it should hold you up. You know how you find out if they're wrong? You come down really quick. So how do you know that if everything you got right about God, in other words, you're confident in your salvation, only at the time of death? That is why we walk by faith. We know God's word is true. Let's go on, verse 9. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, knowing therefore that the terror of the Lord we persuade men. But we are well-known to God, and I also trust that are well-known in your consciousness. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you the opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, and if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So therefore... From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now that's loaded there. But there was, it was what God did to make the world able to come back to him. And that ministry has been handed over to the apostles to take and tell the world about what God has done for them. Then verse 20. So now 
we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For me, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We are ambassadors for Christ. In other words, we now represent him. We are standing in his place. And if we are standing in his place, should we not be doing what he did? Should we not believe what he believed? Should we not say what he said? We come up with a million reasons why we can't or we don't or we shouldn't. But if we are his representatives, when you represent something, you are speaking on behalf of them. You're a representative of whatever organization or country or or entity or whatever. So therefore, you should say and do exactly what they say and did. What they believe matters. That's why we believe the entirety of the Old Testament and we still teach out of it because Jesus believed it. How do we know that Moses wrote the first five books? Because Jesus said so. We don't get to ask Moses. Why do we know that Jesus was the Messiah prophesied about? Because the writers of the New Testament have made that very clear. You see, everything we believe is on a foundation of what God has said. And now we are his ambassadors, his representatives. We are now basically Jesus on this earth to be his hands, to be his feet, and to be his voice. So what should we be doing? We should be teaching, we should be preaching, we should be healing. That was his ministry. When did that change for us? It never did. So what I've told you is that it is always God's will to, be heal, to heal. Always. You'll see a dozen books, dozen, hundreds of books written on the subject. But you know there's one thing that bothers me in those books? Is that they'll write this how it's always God's will to heal. Every single time, He has paid the price for you. And then in the back of the book, they give you 29 reasons why you didn't get healed. Go look for them. I'm telling you, they're out there. Why do we know it's God's will to heal? Said so. What should we stand on? We should stand on this. As I said, doctors don't heal. All they do is put your body in a state that it can be healed. It heals itself. Isn't that amazing? Don't you wish your car did the same thing? It would be wonderful. The fact that this happens shows us beyond a shadow of doubt that God's design was for us to walk in health. He would not have created our bodies in a way to go against His will. Death in baby form is called sickness. We know that, there are, that God's will is to make this whole. So now as we look at this and we begin to break this down in the weeks to come, I want you to understand this. There's basically only two reasons scripturally of why healing doesn't seem to manifest itself. The first one is unbelief. Simply put, you don't believe it. If you don't believe something, you're not going to do it. As I said, if you don't believe in gravity, you're never going to jump. If you don't believe in parachutes, you're going to stay in the plane. You don't believe in the law of the lift, you're going to stay off the plane. Matthew chapter 17, verse 14, it says, And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers severely. 
for he often falls into the fire and often in the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. The child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. I say to you, if you have faith of a mustard seed, that you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Why could they not do it? Jesus said it was your unbelief. You don't believe. We'll get into the details of this later. The number one reason we don't begin to see things is unbelief. Why don't we believe? Very likely because we've been taught wrong. We tend to just believe everything we hear. We don't second guess. We don't do the homework. What is Acts 17.11? Those in Berea were more noble than the Thessalonians because they listened to what Paul had to say and then they searched the scriptures daily to see if what he said was true. Whose responsibility is to get this right? It's not mine, it's yours. What if I'm wrong? Who's going to answer for that? I am. If you believe me, who's going to answer for that? You are. So you should absolutely search the scriptures. So that was the number one reason. The second reason we see this happen is the traditions of men. One of the main things that we see is that we don't even approach healing scripturally because that's not what God does. In Mark chapter 7, verse 9, he said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is a gift to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. Now, he's getting on to the Pharisees here. Now, look at how he said this. You reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition alive. Man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If your tradition goes against that, your tradition is wrong. It is that simple. You see, there's nothing wrong with traditions. There's nothing wrong with things that you do. We all have them. We all like them. You know, you might have a Christmas tradition. You might have an Easter tradition. It just depends. You may have a tradition of of smashing somebody in the face with a pie every time they walk in the door. I don't know if you have that, but it would be fun. Doesn't matter. Those aren't necessarily wrong. Where they are wrong is where they lead you away from what God has said. And that leads us to the point where we say, God, I know that's what you said, but let me tell you what you meant. And that is the exact same thing that the serpent said, did God really say? Your unbelief and your traditions will keep you from truly representing Christ on this earth. Now we're going to dig into this deep. Because honestly, we're not great at teaching. We're even worse at preaching because some of us have adopted the preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use word mantra. Guess what? It's necessary. But more than anything, we have missed the boat when it comes to healing. We talk about and we pray about we need to be more like Christ. I say let's be more like Christ. Let's do what he did and let's say what he said. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in all things that you